Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rachel Woody. It is September 11, 2013, and I'm here with Dr. Greg Jones, who is a climatologist and professor at Southern Oregon University. And the question I'd like to start out with is why wine? And perhaps for you, why climatology as well? Uh, well, this goes quite a bit way back. You're, so you're right, it's a, it's a long story. Um, my initial career when I was in high school was as a chef. I uh, was learning how to cook and I worked in some very nice restaurants in the Bay Area, San Francisco. And um, my, my interest in cooking really came about because I think that that was about the only artistic form of anything I could do. I've always joked that I uh, can't sing or dance or play an <laughs> instrument, but, but I, and I can't draw, you know, so I, my artistic talent is limited, but something happened with food that I could understand, and it was something that really worked with me. And so learning about food when I was young kind of led into learning about wine, of course, because in restaurants that kind of is all tied together. Mm-hmm. So long story short uh, is just that I, I, I started off in the restaurant business and when I went back to school to, uh, to do my college career and, and academics, I really wanted to be a professor. And my intent was I thought originally I was going to be a hydrologist and I wanted to study water resources and, and, and uh, things of that such. And, and so when I got into my program, and I started uh, uh, taking different classes. I still was interested in hydrology, but I took a climatology class and I was very keen on kind of what climate was all about. And, and I remember a professor telling me a story at one time. He said, he says, you don't have to be a hydrologist. You can study the atmosphere because a fluid is a fluid is a fluid. And he, he said, all the principles you know about, about water, you can apply to the atmosphere and it's more dynamic. He said. So he kind of enticed me to be a climatologist. And so the, the, the tie between climatology and wine uh, was going through the whole idea of studying agriculture in one way, shape, or form. And right at about the time that I was in my PhD, uh, getting, I was finishing my undergraduate and about ready to start my PhD program at the University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. My dad was right at the time thinking about uh, leaving the medical profession and going into the wine industry. So he started asking me a series of questions that were uh, associated with, well, you're studying this, you're at a Research One university, you have access to all these library and data resources. Mm-hmm. And right about that time, the early parts of the internet were coming into play. So I had access to Mosaic and Gopher and some of those right. initial things. So, um, so my dad started asking questions around, uh, do you know anything about the data or the climate or uh, grape growing characteristics in these regions and, mm-hmm. and can we find out something about how that might translate to another region in the world and can, if you can find the climate characteristics here, can we match that somewhere else enough to know that we can produce that variety with some confidence? And so the process of my dad asking those questions and, and myself being kind of down this agriculture climate path. Uh, 
I found the questions that my dad was, were, was asking, there weren't a lot of great answers. So the more I delved into what we had in you know archive li library archives at my university plus Library of Congress and other universities, and the more I looked into the world of wine, I kept finding that viticulturists and wine producers, of course, knew a lot about weather and climate and what it meant to uh, viticulture and wine production. But the big thing that I found was is that they weren't studying it in ways I thought were profound enough to develop a greater sense of what was going on. Then on the climate science side of things, as I was in my academic program, I started looking, were there any climatologists that were studying viticulture and wine? Mm -hmm. And there were none. And so what I saw was is that my father's asking questions that I can't find answers to. Very few people are doing this kind of research on either side of, the, of, of my interests. And so it was kind of pretty easy for me to say, well, there's a niche of something that academically interested me has an interest to my family and something that nobody else is doing. And so I, I went down that path and, and so that's how kind of climate and wine came to be for me. So as I started my PhD program, I, uh, uh, was, I had a great uh, major professor at the University of Virginia and he says, well, do you want to study viticulture in Virginia? And I was like, well, yeah, I think there's some unique things there, but I think really what we need is we need to study the aspects of this in a place where I can find the longest data sets available uh, that gives us a historical perspective and allows us to understand the relationships better. And so naturally it, it caused me to turn to Europe and to look at uh, places in Europe. And so, you know, of course I looked in Italy and Spain and, and, and France and Germany and it ended up being Bordeaux where I settled on. And, um, and Bordeaux uh, was, a, it was a great place because the the academic institutions there were, were very welcoming to me, uh, and some of the producers were very welcoming to me. And so, you know, a, a young American who didn't speak French uh, coming knocking on the door, you know, they, it wasn't easy, but they started opening the, the door to the idea that I could potentially do some research that could help. And so I would, they, I would, they shared data with me and information that, that allowed me to really, uh, at least at some point, uh, I had probably the best historical collection of information on Bordeaux's uh, wine industry of anybody. And I started taking that information to try to better understand how does weather and climate influence the growing of the grapes, uh, the vine uh, structure, balance, everything, and what does that mean in terms of fruit, composition, characteristics, and then how does that translate into wine? So I, uh, as I was doing this, so I was doing my dissertation work in Bordeaux and then working at the University of Virginia, and the whole time I was doing this, I was still helping my dad look for the place to grow Tempranillo, which was his main interest, Spanish varieties. So, so I was kind of doing two things at once, uh, so to speak. And so that's kind of how I ended up studying wine, and it was really a fortuitous set of circumstances that because I, I, when I finished, uh, I've kind of become the world's wine climatologist, and, uh, mm -hmm. and it's been very rewarding because there, I think I found a place where people really weren't doing very much, and, and now there's just a whole uh, group of people that have kind of followed in some of the research areas that I started, and um, it's been really rewarding to kind of watch that happen, and I'm sure it's only gonna grow more in the future. 
Yes, I'm sure your father, Earl Jones, was one of the first, if not the first, to really try and match a, a European climate and varietal with somewhere in the U.S. Uh, have you seen that grow? Yes, I, I definitely have. I mean, it's pretty clear. And I, I, I should say that, that this has been going on for a long time. Australians did something similar, Chileans, Argentinians. And, and, and throughout the U.S., there's been this attempt to always try to pick the best site to grow the best variety. Mm -hmm. There's been some research done over the years that have looked at it, but often the research wasn't done necessarily correct relative to either that variety and or that location. And so I, I think that there was, even when we started looking at it, there, was, there still was a lot to be learned. And I still think today there's a lot to be learned. Um, for example, you know, how do we know that, um, there, that one variety is suited to this climate and maybe not something else that we have never experienced before? Or uh, another question is, is that an uh, Italian variety like Nebbiolo why does Nebbiolo do what it does in the Piedmont region and has never really truly been replicated anywhere in the world in a consistent way? We've been able to do similar things with other varieties, but Nebbiolo is a mystery. And so, you know, it's those kind of questions as a scientist that really kind of interest me. Uh, and I think more and more people are trying to do that. The, the, the new world of wine today uh, is all about experimentation. You know, people can go to a given region and, and, and plant a variety that they've had a, a fascination with as long as they know that, that the climate will allow that variety to ripen and they've got a good piece of land that doesn't hinder it in some way, shape, mm -hmm. or form then they can achieve that kind of really unique kind of uh, marriage of their interest in a, in a variety. With what you've researched so far, and then of course what you're seeing in Southern Oregon, uh, one of the major questions we've been exploring is, okay, it's Pinot Noir, that's a big Oregon wine, but what else could Oregon be known for or is going to be known for? And this is a this is a big issue because we have an extremely diverse state. Uh, mm -hmm. If you look at the climates of, of Oregon, we may be as diverse as any other major wine region in the world. We're we're like France in many ways in terms of having kind of cool to uh, moderate to relatively warm climates. And in doing so, across that diversity, we can really uh, grow quite a few different varieties. I don't have exact data on this, but I, I know that in Southern Oregon, the Umpqua and the Rogue Valley, there's at least 70 different varieties being grown today. Now, some of them may, may be very small quantities, but the, the idea behind that is, is that that tells us something about the industry, that we have a diverse enough climate that, that people are trying things that are, are quite different from, from what might be the norm. So, so Oregon is largely known for Pinot Noir because of the cool climate growing region of the Willamette. Uh, but Pinot Noir can be grown in Southern Oregon as well because we have, a, again, an extremely diverse climate. And so, I, I, you know, I think that our state has been built upon the background of this cool climate uh, uh, production of uh, Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, Chardonnay, Pinot Blanc, those kind of things. But there's a tremendous number of things that can be done, whether it be uh, Grenache or Malbec or uh, things like Albarino or Verdejo or, or, or Tempranillo. Those all have a home here. It's just finding the right site and the right producer with the right approach to 
maximize that quality and gain the recognition for it. So I think we have tr uh, just a huge diversity of potential. And could you remind me, how long have you been at Southern Oregon University? I, I came to Oregon in 1997, uh, so I've been there now. This is my going on my 17th academic year there, um, and it's been a it's been a great situation. I took the job actually. My father had already uh, bought the land in the Umpqua and started uh, Abusella prior to me moving there. I was teaching at the University of Virginia, and I had finished my dissertation and. I really had just started thinking about looking for a job as a professor somewhere else. So I applied to a whole bunch of jobs all over the country and I had a few offers and uh, as I was going through that process, Southern Oregon University had an opening. Mm -hmm. And you know, so I saw it and I thought, wow, you know, this is it's kind of interesting. This is in a place not too far from my family, uh, not, not too far from uh, some beautiful parts of the country that I just absolutely love, mm -hmm. and also in a small town where I wanted, where I kind of wanted to uh, be able to move to, and a university and a wine industry that really didn't have anybody doing any research for it. So uh, I interviewed, and it just happened that I, uh, you know, I went through the process, and they offered me a job, and uh, so I took the position and moved out in the summer of '97, and. Um, it was a great, it was a great experience. I remember uh, going to, uh, I can't, I was out for the interview, and I hadn't told my, anybody in the family that I was doing this, and so I, I drove up from Ashland to Roseburg and just knocked on the door and said, "Hey, guess what?" Oh. <laughs> and so it was, it was pretty exciting to be able to kind of tell the family that. You know, it was, it was nice to be able to move close to where family was, and I, I have family spread all over the place, but you know, I knew my dad was establishing something, and to mm -hmm. be kind of near that was uh, important because I had kind of helped him uh, be a part of that and I, I wanted to continue that. So uh, coming to Ashland was, uh, was perfect for me in many regards. My wife and I uh, have um, really enjoyed living there, the small town environment, uh, rural atmosphere, uh, and the industry as it's grown. It was um, a very small industry when I first got there and it's just grown in leaps and bounds since then. And so to be a part of that has, has been really uh, very rewarding. When you came to Oregon in Southern Oregon, gosh, in 97, were there about 12 wineries in operation at that time? Or was there a bit more? It's probably pretty close to that. Yeah. Uh, it, it, there may be 15 in all of the Umpqua and the Rogue, but not, no more than 15. The number of vineyards were also pretty limited. There may have been uh, maybe only about 60 or 70 uh, vineyards, and they were quite scattered uh, in many different locations. Uh, the wineries were successful in some ways, and in other ways they really hadn't reached their uh, potential about stepping out and getting recognition from the broader uh, wine market. Mm -hmm. uh, some people had had some pretty good success even at that point in time, I think. Uh, there were some wineries that were making a name for themselves. But there was just this big void in terms of what I thought, things that I could offer as an academic researcher uh, for the region. And so I, I tried to step into the industry and tell them, listen, this is what I did in my dissertation. This is my kind of background with this. These are kind of things I think that I could do to help you. And then I listened to the industry as well. I've uh, been going to Umpqua Valley Wine Growers Associations and Rogue Valley Wine Growers Association meetings for ever since I've been here. And 
and trying to listen to kind of the things that were challenges to them mm -hmm. in terms of uh, the types of research that I thought I might be able to do. And so through listening uh, to the industry, I think I was able to craft some projects over time that have been relatively useful and, and arguably could probably even be redone because I've been here long enough now that some of the things we learned initially, it would be, it'd be wonderful to kind of update those uh, today. One of the, the things we've been following, and I'm sure you could really speak to, is the climatologist. How have you seen the varietals change, what's been planted down in Southern Oregon, mm -hmm. and then of course what are the implications of the climate changing now? With yeah, I mean, there's, there's quite a few things we can kind of touch with on that, and I think probably the best thing to do is to kind of step back into maybe the 1960s, 50s, 60s, and 70s in Oregon in general. If we, if we look back at that time, and we looked at the, 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 the ability to grow grapes in Oregon, I, I can tell you right now, just, uh, just looking at the data and, and, of course, talking to some of the early people, it was a challenge. It was a, a very big challenge because the climates typically were either from a, a summertime uh, temperature standpoint just too cool, or there was too much frost, or there was too much rain at the wrong time. And, and so the climates back then were, were not as conducive as they are today for us, for this industry. Down in the Rogue, the limitation I think early on was all about frost. You had to have the absolute perfect site to, to have a frost-free experience down there. And, and you know, if you get frost in too many years in a row, you're, 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 you know, it's hard to produce wine. Mm -hmm. so, so the climates of, of, of the past were, were challenging. And this is why we have to give so many of the early growers a lot of kudos because they came to a challenging environment to grow grapes. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the pioneers in the Willamette or the Umpqua or the Rogue, they did so uh, hopefully knowing that they were getting into a challenging environment, but seeing also that there was a uh, great potential. So they came and they, uh, they did their thing and, and went through those early trial and error periods that were, I think, really important to the industry as a whole. But again, the climates back then were difficult. You could arguably look at a, uh, at a one in five or maybe a three in 10 good vintage kind of scenario wow. back then. And it was either due to one aspect or another. It was either too cold uh, in the growing season, you had some frost that, you know, that hurt the vines in the spring, or you end up having too much rain at the wrong time. Fast forward to today, we're in a much different environment. Uh, we could arguably say nine years out of 10 or 10 years out of 10, we can produce wine you know, everywhere in the state that it's grown. There are some challenge years, there are some challenges between individual kind of vintages, but, but it's a completely different environment. So. In the Rogue, where frost was the limitation, today it's, it, frost still occurs, but it doesn't occur to the same frequency. Uh, if we look at other places, uh, the Willamette Valley being right at the margin of enough uh, uh, heat to warm, uh, to ripen the varieties that have been grown here, uh, today it's suitable. And so we're just in a different environment. So climate change has made the industry more resilient today because of it. Now the, the, the question always kind of moves into the future, and everybody you know wants to know that the you know the, the future you know is a it's a challenge to predict, but climatologists have been looking and modeling the climate, uh, and we we've done a pretty good job of being able to understand what that looks like, 
And we, 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 what we try to do is we try to model the past knowing what we know. Mm -hmm. And if we can go, do a good job of creating today based upon those models, then we, we think we can be fairly confident of what those models might look like in the future. And so if we look at our future climate structure, um, there's no indication that the climates are not going to continue to change. So, and that, that change is, is pointing us toward a warmer environment still. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you take the past 30 to 50 years of, of climate change and what we can do today and then move forward, we're likely going to see a completely different grape growing environment in the future. It, it very well could be that we're warmer in some places to grow varieties that we can't grow today. Mm -hmm. But it also likely may be that the conditions which that are marginal in some places right now are also going to be much more conducive. Um, it, 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 we, there could be any number of, of kind of end results, but if we're, if we're looking at what our models are telling us, then the future is going to be different. And we need to know what that looks like and know the range of the potential and then operate within that. For the Southern Oregon wine industry, and if you're comfortable speaking to it, the larger Oregon wine industry, have you seen that grow, and, and where do you see that going in the next 10, 20 years? Uh, you mean in terms of climate? Um, uh, sorry, sort of in climate, of course, but also um, as an industry, as it plays in, in business and marketing and, and with the national and international wine business. Well, you know, I, 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 this is a real challenge because we're, we're in a unique place relative to the rest of the fabric of the U.S. wine production. You know, wine is being produced virtually in every state today, and there's regionalities that have developed that are quite interesting. But if you look at the, the, the big five, so to speak, in our industry, uh, you know, Oregon, you know, sits at either four or five, depending on, you know, the year and the production. But, but California is a behemoth. It's just, a, it, it, it's just huge in terms of the production in comparison to Oregon. Oregon will never play in that, that, that overall game with California in terms of being able to play, play at a lower price point and, and, mm -hmm. and be a major, major competitor in terms of, um, uh, of the same level of wines. But Oregon has a place in terms of being able to do things at quality points that potentially are going to be very different than they can be in California and other places. So I think Oregon will always kind of, uh, I mean, the, the numbers are dramatic. I mean, California is 90 to 93% of the state, of the country's production, and Oregon is less than a fraction of 1%. I mean, so it's just a, a completely different types of industries. But what Oregon has going for it is, is that um, we have a quality factor that I think that most of the producers are shooting for. We're playing at a different price point. Uh, we, we work with different varieties in different ways and produce different styles of wines than that are often done in California. So we have some uniqueness associated with that. Mm -hmm. Oregon also has a, a, a general viewpoint that uh, the rest of the country, when you hear about Oregon, you think about uh, 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 something being green or sustainable or organic or something right. along that line. So the vision of Oregon is different. Uh, I think I saw some research uh, not too many years ago that looked at, you know, the different types of uh, 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 wine perceptions. And California, of course, is value. 
and and Oregon is uh, is uh, quality and, mm -hmm. and environment and you know that kind of thing. And so I think Oregon's place will be that for a long time. I, I could see the climate becoming more conducive and our industry is going to grow. Of course, we're going to probably get uh, much more acreage planted over the next uh, you know, decade, you know, two decades. There's no doubt, but it's not going to grow you know, to California size mm -hmm. in that time period. I mean, if you look at our trajectory of, of growth, it's around 3 to 5% per year right now. And, um, you know, I could see that continuing. Uh, if uh, certain things happen in the market, I could see it getting uh, even, even more rapid than that. But, uh, but I wouldn't expect it to change too much. Mm -hmm. What are some of the future concerns uh, grape growers and winemakers may have in the future? Well, I mean, I think, you know, climate is clearly one of them, yeah. and there's no doubt. You know, the climate presents a, a really three, what I think are three basic things. The, the, the issue of uh, extreme events like um, a hail, rain at the wrong time, so on and so forth. If, if our future climates uh, uh, change in terms of extremes, we, we have to be very careful of that. That's a risk factor to the crop. And so we need to understand kind of what that looks like. We also need to understand how the climate varies. Uh, it, it varies on short to long time scales, and we need to understand what that looks like to manage production, there's no doubt. And climate change, of course, if, we, if we're not prudent enough to, to pay attention and then adapt as needed, then we're going to have some challenges in the future. The, probably today, and maybe even more so in the future, that I can foresee right now is the issues of uh, diseases and pests that we don't know anything about or that, we, that our systems have never seen and we're not used to managing. Uh, we have a few today that uh, are somewhat problematic, and we really don't know where that's headed. It could it could get worse. It, they they might run up to some natural limits that that uh, keep them from uh, being problematic. But invasive species that that come by happenstance of human processes, you know, mm -hmm. where we you know move nursery products from here to there, or we bring products from our aunt's house in Kansas, and all of a sudden there's a bug in it. And, you know, that bug or whatever disease or whatever it is all of a sudden proliferates here because it doesn't have any enemies. Mm -hmm. And so th those kinds of issues, I think, will always be at the forefront. There may be a, a new disease or pest every few years that we don't know much about today. So we need to be prepared for that and uh, at least have systems that we can adapt or make more resilient to those kind of uh, challenges uh, over time. Um, you know, changing markets, international issues, are, of course, are a, a big component of things. You know, the, the, the fact that you can go get a relatively inexpensive bottle of wine, you know, from another country on our uh, store shelves is a, is a challenge because we're a high-end producing uh, uh, state and we're going to play at a different price point. So we have to be able to match up the story uh, to that price point and the quality to that price point so that the consumer is, is, is clearly aware that then when they buy something from Oregon, it means quality. Right. So for the, the regional associations and for those concerns, in Oregon, it, it seems like from an outsider perspective that a lot of this, the industry is figuring out together 
course they have a couple specialists such as yourself. Is it pretty much a, an industry effort or how are they able to sort of keep an eye out for that and be prepared? Well, the, you know, the industry and research uh, areas have worked together in some ways pretty powerfully, in other ways uh, there's a lot to be uh, developed still. We, you know, we of course have a state system that kind of helps through extension uh, in different ways. But the, the, I think probably the biggest thing about the wine grape industry is the ability for the industry to share and collaborate. Mm -hmm. um, part of these regional associations, they're part of their original, their goals are really to share information and or bring in people from outside the area that might be able to help them mm -hmm. understand a given challenge or, or potential within, uh, within a given area. So I, I, I think the, the, this, this whole issue of sharing and, and, and educating each other, because the, the, the framework behind wine is, is that if you can carry everybody to a higher quality place, you're all going to be better off. Mm -hmm. And so uh, winemaking uh, processes that increase sanitation and quality consistency after uh, processing in the winery is important and people share and are working in those arenas as well. Viticultural practices that may be tied to uh, plant material or rootstocks and or uh, how to train the vines, those are all individual ways in which uh, I think growers learn from each other. Uh, they always say that one of the, the best things you can ever do with a vineyard is look over your fence at the next person's vineyard and then go talk to them and find out mm -hmm. kind of uh, what's going on because I, I tell you they're not they're not there to see you fail uh, but you gotta ask the right questions and, and be engaging and I think that that's the biggest thing for the industry it's not so much that other industries don't do that I just think that the wine industry is much more in in an engaging community of people working together. So that was pretty much the formal set of my questions, mm -hmm. but I know we could go a lot further in your specialty, or perhaps mm -hmm. there's areas I should have asked you about that we could mm -hmm. cover. Well, you know, I, I, I could, um, there's probably a lot of different ways that, that, you know, we could talk about different things. One of the uh, pieces of research that I did early on was all about documenting kind of where and how grapes are being grown in a region. I think this mm -hmm. is an important piece of uh, research that can be done from the academic side. Um, the, you know, as industries developed in um, uh, in Europe, in in kind of old world wine regions, you know, these kind of things. Some of it was trial and error. Some of it there was a little research, but it it just kind of evolved over time. And so, if you look at a given location like Burgundy, you know, we're talking about a thousand years of development at least, mm -hmm. and and so can we? accelerate that. Does the Willamette Valley need a thousand years to end up to be something unique? No. I think we that today with our the information that we have available and the tools we have available, we can accelerate that kind of knowledge so we can remove a little bit of the trial and error kind of stage. And what I'm getting at is this idea that can we understand where the best vineyards could be where the best terroirs are, so to speak. The idea that can we, uh, can we map them out and help people make good decisions? And I think research has gotten to that place. Will we know every answer all the time? No, but the idea is, is that our tools with, uh, with spatial data, 
uh, in climate or landscapes or soils, all those kind of things, allow us to be able to say if uh, a given variety or a given uh, known style of wine can be produced on this piece of land in this climate, then where else can we find that in the same area? Right. And some of the original pieces of research I, uh, I've done down in Southern Oregon have tried to look at that. Tried to say that, okay, what kind of landscapes do we have within our climate that are the most suitable to wine grape production? And try to help people make that, that good first decision. Because site selection is the key to the whole thing. If you get the wrong site, or you put the wrong variety on a good site, then you're gonna have a mismatch. Right. And trying to, to help that out as a, as a learning process is very important. You can only imagine how many trial and error mismatches were done in, in other places as the, uh, the wine industries developed there. And so hopefully my research has helped kind of uh, put that uh, in, in the grower's hands a little bit more. The idea that we document baseline conditions, we observe kind of evolving conditions, and then we can kind of model where those conditions can be found in other places. So I think that's a that's hopefully something that will uh, develop over time, and, and who knows that you know in 20 years from now, uh, what I'm talking about in terms of doing this kind of thing will will be even more refined to some very uh, uh, automated ways that would make it even that much easier for growers. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's an important important piece of uh, the puzzle is uh, it accelerates the trial and error, so to speak, so that you don't have to do as much of it. Right, certainly not a thousand years yeah. worth yeah. of time. Yeah. Uh, I know that we are starting to broach research on um, trying to identify the varietals that the Oregon pioneers first planted, like in the 1800s. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've had a chance to really get into that part of the research. Or? Well, I, I mean, I've looked at some things, but mm -hmm. uh, the I mean, I could go back to Peter Britt in Southern mm -hmm. Oregon mm -hmm. and his initial. Uh, kind of uh, foray into it. You know, he, he was uh, really a horticulturist and a weather geek, kind of like I am. Mm -hmm. You know, he, um, he was extremely interested in kind of uh, the environment that he was moving into in Southern Oregon. And he brought a tremendous number of plants, not only grapevines, but many other horticultural uh, crops as well. And he planted as many things as he could to figure out kind of how they grew there. And then Peter Britt and his son Emil were the, really the first forecasters, so to speak, or data collectors for weather and climate in Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. They started, as a matter of fact, Emil started with the Weather Bureau when it was established, but uh, Peter Britt actually took recordings, and there's some really interesting data back in the 1880s, uh, no, 18, 1860s and 70s, where he wrote down what the high temperature was, the low temperature, and, and what his plants were doing at that time. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot to be found there. I know Peter Britt had a wide, wide range of grapevine varieties that he brought in. He didn't always specify exactly what they were, because he may not have known mm -hmm. exactly what they were. And I'd be willing to bet that even some of the early things that came in through the Columbia Gorge on the Oregon Trail, that the growers there possibly didn't know what they were. I mean, if you, if you think about it, taking cuttings, dormant cuttings uh, from Europe to the United States and then moving all the way across the West into uh, parts of really Idaho, mm -hmm. uh, up in Clarkson and down in the Snake River Valley, 
uh, and then across through Washington and to Oregon. As they were bringing these varieties over, I, I, I can't imagine that there was perfect knowledge of what they were. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, so here, here's kind of an interesting question. Uh, just think of that historical kind of what had to have happened. So let's say that you're an Italian and you're, and you're in somewhere in Umbria and you've got, or, or Chianti, and you've got a, some Sangiovese cuttings from your grandfather's property and you've come over on a ship. Well, how long were those cuttings held? And did they, you know, how did they keep them? Right. And then, so they come to the United States, they land wherever they land, maybe they come through Ellis Island in the early 1900s or, or whatever, and how did the cuttings get managed at that point? Did somebody plant them in New Jersey and then take more cuttings from them? Right. <laughs> and then, then what happens when they decided, I'm going to go westward? Whatever time period that was, 1800s, uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And then as they come westward, what did they do? Did they, how did they keep those cuttings viable? Mm -hmm. And did, they, did the same person who brought them over for Italy package them up and put them on the wagon to take them out to Oregon. So uh, you can see all along that path there could have been potential things that happened. Now as ship uh, movement came into San Francisco and Portland and Seattle over time, mm -hmm. there was a greater likelihood of that material making it on a ship passage uh, and it being exactly known what it was. Right. And I think as time moved on and we got further into the 1900s, that of course probably became much more uh, documented. But some of the early stuff, if you go into the 1830s, 1840s, 50s, 60s, as that material came across into Oregon, to be able to know exactly what that was, even if somebody had good documentation, we might not really know. Right. And I know something we've been finding is what they called it then may be called something different now and it yeah. could be the same thing. Or well, completely. Yeah. yeah, or the opposite, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's some challenges there. I, I mean, I think we have to take some aspects of historical information with a grain of salt and, and really understand that, that it, it likely could have been this, uh, especially if somebody maybe who knew varieties relatively well was the person transporting it. Uh, mm -hmm. But it, it's very easily, it could have been many other things as, as well. There was some indication that even some of the, you know, some of what Peter Britt had may have been completely different from what he documented. Some of the Dorners and uh, von Pessels and the Umqua uh, potentially had some uh, similar kind of things going on. There was some early documentation out of California that when they were trialing, there was a, uh, the gentleman's name was uh, Bialetti, I think it was, the mm. one of the early uh, agriculturalist at UC Davis that was trialing wine grape varieties. There was some uh, information that happened between the 1870s and 80s and early 1900s that, that he showed that he potentially had the wrong variety completely in a couple of trials. And you can imagine that happening. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's, I mean the, the classic story with this is in Chile, where Chile uh, uh, for years had been known for growing Merlot because that's what they had on their label. And then genetic research uh, found it was mostly Carmenier. I mean, I, can't you imagine that something like that at one point in time could have happened here too? Right. For you, what is the most curious or what do you feel most passionate about with 
with wine and climatology? Oh, I, you know, I think that um, probably the fact that we still don't know very much. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it interesting to try to better understand that. It's, it's such a complex system when you, when you tie multiple factors of the natural environment with uh, multiple you know, approaches from the cultural environment uh, and produce a product. I mean, how do we know with any certainty you know, the, that, that the, this taste or this aroma or this style is driven by, you know, this site in this way? Mm -hmm. Those are just really interesting questions. And I, uh, I, I think that kind of drives me to kind of continue looking at those kind of things. I think we know a reasonable amount about kind of what some of the limits are. Like we know that, you know, certain varieties just can't grow if the climate's too cold. But do we know what the warm limit is? Man, we may not. They, the varieties also may be more kind of uh, plastic in terms of how they might adapt in a, to a given environment. And, and trying to understand what that is for me is kind of an interesting uh, kind of ongoing research question. Well, is there anything else you'd like to leave for us? Well, I, you know, I just think that it's a, it's a pleasure to, um, to chat with you and, and be a part of kind of what you're doing. The, um, this process is just really important for people to be able to look back at, uh, and very much so from the people that were in the ground doing the planting and, and watching these things happening over time. I've been very fortunate to be able to look at that from another side and, and try to uh, help document it from a science standpoint. And, uh, but I give, uh, I mean, going back and giving the people, the early pioneers, the kudos for coming to a difficult place to do something. Mm -hmm. um, and, and sticking with it, uh, you got to really kind of uh, tip your hat to that. And so just being a part of being able to talk about that, I think, is very rewarding. So I'm happy to be a part. Well, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.